The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. I am thankful for the opportunity to be back, and I am grateful for the gracious hospitality of the faculty and administration. have been looking forward to this hour for some time. I want you to imagine that the year is A.D. 30. You're eating dinner in the house of a man named Simon the leper. You've stopped in the little village of Bethany because you and your family are on your way to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's just six days away. This is the Saturday before Calvary. At the head of the table is a man named Lazarus, and he is telling an incredible story about being resurrected from the dead. At his right hand is Jesus, a man that he claims raised him from the dead. The evening is proceeding normally until a woman walks into the room and makes a beeline for the head table. Nobody pays her too much attention at first, but as she passes you by, it becomes obvious to you that she is sobbing. Tears are pouring from her eyes. She is having an emotional episode. In her hands, she clutches a marble vial. From what you can tell, it looks like alabaster. The woman collapses at the feet of the young rabbi. She smashes the vial on the floor. It makes a loud, crashing sound like the dropping of the plate, and everyone's eyes are now on her. You watch as she pours out what must have been her greatest treasure on an even greater treasure in a strong, beautiful, intoxicating fragrance fills the room. Every individual is now marked by the scent of her perfume. And 2,000 years later, we are still marked by it. The fulfillment of a promise that as long as people remember the name of Jesus, they would remember the name of a woman whose extravagant, sacrificial love would so closely resemble his own. And her love for Christ prompts a very personal question from all of us this morning. What is Christ worth to you? And I want you to think about that. What is Christ really worth to you? Let's read about the story in Mark chapter 14 in verse 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now we're going to rewind six days before the Passover to a scene that prompts an act of betrayal. Look at verse 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he said at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, And she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. 
Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She is come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. The title of the message is just that question, what is Christ worth to you? I notice in the first place, the woman's devotion, we find that in verse 3. Her gift made to Christ was a visible, and if I could even say it this way, a smellable display of her deep affection for the Lord Jesus. I notice a few things about her gift. In the first place, it was precious. Both the box and the contents of the box were incredibly valuable. The alabaster box was carved from a variety of fine Egyptian marble and imported all the way to Israel. The box was really more of a vial, and it had a long neck with a small opening at the top, so you could pour out only a drop, of, a drop or two of what was inside. Now, the contents of the vial were even rarer than the box, because inside was ointment of spikenard. Mark said it was very precious. It was a kind of perfume or anointing oil. It was imported from the Himalayan mountains in northern India. Now, in our affluent culture, we think nothing about expensive perfume in a fancy bottle. But this was not something that a lady could go to Dillard's or Macy's and buy. In verse 5, we're told that the vial and ointment could have been sold for 300 pence. That was a year's salary for a working man. So girls, we're not talking about a bottle of Coco Chanel here. We're talking about perfume that would cost you an entire year's salary. I know there's some guy leaning over to his girlfriend right now saying, I'd buy it for you, babe. No problem. But if you would spend that much on a bottle of perfume, I'd like to have your head examined after this service is over. There's really only one reason that a woman in in that culture would have a gift so precious. It was most likely an heirloom passed on to her by her parents. It was perhaps the extent of an inheritance that she received upon their deaths. No doubt they intended that this vial and spikenard would be used as the woman's dowry, a love gift for her future husband, perhaps that they would pass on to their own children one day. If the woman remained unmarried, it would be her only possession of value to leave behind to other relatives. Perhaps she would use it even in her own burial. So I want you to see the picture Inside that box was not only ointment of spikenard, but the totality of her dead parents' love, all of her hopes and dreams for the future. Mark was right. The ointment was not just costly. It was precious, and it was very precious at that. Not only was the gift precious, but I noticed this. It was poured out. She did not use the small opening at the top of the vial so she could pour out just a drop or two for Jesus. No, the Bible tells us that she broke the box. The idea is that she poured all of it out, and it totally saturated the body of Jesus. John tells us that the fragrance that it produced was so strong that it filled the entire room. 
By breaking the box and pouring out all of the contents, she was saying something very important, something we need to pay attention to. Half measures and moderation simply were not fit to express her sentiments for her Lord. So the box must be opened. It must, excuse me, the box must not be opened. It must be broken, never to be used by anyone else. The contents must be poured, not pinched or skimped. Jesus must have it all. It was a gesture of radical abandon, total surrender, and sacrificial love. Now, I want you to think with me for just a moment. No one gives a gift so expensive. No one makes a gesture so extravagant, one that could keep her from getting married in the future, or one that would leave her without an inheritance or burial, one that encompassed her past, her present, and her future. No one makes a choice like that without a great deal of premeditated thought. So her gift was precious. It was poured out. Notice it was premeditated. Now John's gospel gives us a piece of information that we don't read in Mark's gospel. He tells us the identity of the woman. Who was she? Well, John chapter 12 tells us that her name was Mary. We know her as Mary of Bethany. Now, you need to know that this woman was not unfamiliar with Christ. She was not a stranger to him. Mary and her sister Martha and their brother had a large home in the village of Bethany. Bethany was very close to Jerusalem, and as Jesus and his disciples traveled from the north of the country, they would often stop in that home. And these sisters and their brother would provide a hospitable and warm place for Jesus and his disciples to stay. We know that at least on one occasion, Jesus taught in the home of Mary, and she was sitting at his feet and hearing his word. And interestingly enough, that is the posture that we always find Mary in. Whenever you find her in the New Testament, Mary of Bethany is always sitting at the feet of Jesus. What a wonderful place to live your life. Well, we know that Mary and Martha had a brother, and his name was Lazarus. You remember him? In John chapter 11, we learn that Lazarus died. Jesus comes, but he's four days late. Mary meets him not far from the burying place, and the Bible says that she fell at his feet and she wept, as only someone who is grieving could. And as she wept, something almost indescribable happened. As her tears bathed his sandaled feet, his tears began to bathe the back of her head. And in one of the most tender verses in all of the Bible, John 11.35 says, Jesus wept. And I want you to think about those two, sharing that tender moment together. And the Bible says that after Jesus groaned in the Spirit, He went to the tomb where Lazarus was and said three words that changed His life forever. Lazarus, come forth. And that day a grieving sister got to throw her arms around her dead brother. John chapter 11 tells us about their relationship. It sums it up quite neatly. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. Now why go into all of that context? Well, the context of that relationship is the key to understanding the sacrifice that Mary makes in our story. The Lord Jesus was dear to Mary, and she was dear to him. And her close friendship with Christ became the nexus of her deep devotion to Christ. If I could just say it simply, Mary knew him better than most people knew him. 
And because of that, she loved him more than most people loved him. And sometime before that feast, Mary found a quiet place where she could think. She pondered the words that she had heard as she sat at his feet. Words of power, words of authority, words of grace like never a man had spoke. She pondered the amazing works that she had seen him do, chief among them reuniting her with her dead brother. As she pondered the works and the words of Jesus and the compassion and love that he had shown to her, her heart overflowed with gratitude and love. And in that moment and the moment of action that followed, her chief consideration was not the cost of her gift, it was the worth of the recipient. And she had found in Christ a treasure greater than her greatest treasure. She had found in Christ a treasure worth losing every other treasure for. And she broke it, and she poured it out, and she gave it all to Him. I want you to listen to me, young people. Perhaps the greatest question that any Christian ever asks, and maybe the only question that really matters in the long run, is what is Christ worth to me? What is He worth to me? And the answer to that question will settle everything else in your life. To some people like Mary of Bethany, Jesus is precious. In the 1800s, Chinese missionary Hudson Taylor traveled across America and called young people to come with him and be missionaries to China. But he told them that they would have to pack their belongings in a casket because it was likely that they would die in China or at the very least that they would never see their homeland or their parents ever again. And by the hundreds, Young people all over the United States of America packed their belongings in caskets and moved to America. One such young lady headed to the train station with her father, her belongings packed in a wooden casket. With understandable sadness at their parting, the father and daughter stood there on the platform. They embraced and wept and said their last goodbyes. As the train pulled away, someone, asked, someone who was standing by asked the father, How could you send your daughter to a distant land? How could you send her to die to never see her again? And brushing tears out of his eyes, the man said, Sir, I have nothing too precious for my Lord and Savior. Can you imagine that? What about you this morning? Do you have anything too precious for your Lord? Some dream for the future? Some possession? Do you have a sinful habit too precious for Jesus? A relationship or friendship too precious for Jesus? I ask you this morning, what is Christ worth to you? And what does He want you to pour at His feet? And I would ask you this morning not to consider the cost of the gift. Consider instead the worth of the recipient. Young person, has Christ saved you? Has He changed your life? Do you love Him? What is He worth to you? Do you have anything too precious for Him? 
And would to God that each of his blood-bought children would fall down at his feet this morning and pour out their precious things to Christ like Mary did with her alabaster box. We see in this woman a picture of someone whose devotion to Christ so motivated her to give the greatest treasure that she had. And the question she forces us to ask is, what is Christ worth to us? And what can her devotion teach us about our own devotion? So we notice in the first place, the woman's devotion. Let me ask you a question. What do you think ought to follow such a tender scene? I would like to think that the disciples immediately pulled out their quills and scrolls so they could record this moment for all of history. Or perhaps that they would have summoned an artist to paint this beautiful scene so all the world could see it. Perhaps best of all, that the rest of the room, led by the disciples themselves, should one by one make a parade to the feet of Jesus and give him gifts of love. But is that what happened in the passage? No. Alas, what happened will be recognized as all too common by those who have ever given something significant or extravagant to Jesus. Her commitment to Christ was met not by acceptance and celebration. It was met by resistance, anger, and criticism. So we notice in the first place, not only the woman's devotion, but we notice in the second place, the critic's deflection. I call it a deflection because they use this matter of selling the ointment to feed the poor so that they might deflect attention away from the fact that Mary's sacrificial love only highlighted the inferiority of their own love for Jesus. It was deflection. We notice in verse 4 their indignation. It says, and there were some that had indignation within themselves. Have you ever been indignant? I mean, that's a strong word. It's a strong word that describes a strong emotion. This same word was also used to describe the emotions of the chief priest on the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the crowd said, Hosanna. And that indignation that they had was so strong that they began to plot his murder. I'm telling you, these men are angry. They are full of hate. And we notice that it was not just one or two people that had indignation, but multiple people were inwardly indignant that a woman might put on such a show, express such emotion, offer such devotion, give something away that was so lavishly and extravagantly expensive. Their indignation is followed by accusation. They say this was a waste, worth a whole man's salary, a whole year's salary. A lot of poor people could have had their bellies filled if she would have just sold it. Now, have you ever noticed how downright generous and philanthropic people can be with other people's money? John recorded that it was Judas who was the ringleader of this criticism. And Judas was not indignant because the woman had robbed the poor. She was indignant because the woman had robbed him. Because if she had sold this and given it to the disciples, Judas was the treasurer and he had been stealing from the bag. And he saw a missed opportunity for grift and greed. Indignation is followed by accusation. Accusation is followed by defamation. It says they murmured against her. Inward indignation is one thing, public defamation quite another. Again, use your imagination, see the scene. Here is a woman in a house full of men 
who has just done this incredibly brave and vulnerable and loving thing. And if anyone should have recognized and appreciated such a gift, it should have been Jesus' own disciples, the ones who claimed to love him most. They should have known their master's value more than anyone else knew it. But instead of celebrating her love for Jesus, they criticized her love for Jesus. And I can almost hear them now. What an extreme, emotional, immature performance that was. I guess now we're all supposed to feel bad because we didn't bring a gift for Jesus. Well, I don't feel bad. She should feel bad. She poured a whole year's wages on a man's feet. What a waste. I'm reminded of a quote by J.C. Ryle. He said, the spirit of these narrow-minded fault finders is unhappily only too common. Their followers and successors are to be found in every part of Christ's visible church. There is never wanting a generation of people who will decry what they call extremes in religion and are incessantly recommending what they term as moderation in the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money, and affection to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all that he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his foolishness. He is beside himself, they say. He is out of his mind. He is an enthusiast. He is a fanatic. And isn't that true? When Buffett and Gates declare that they're going to give their fortunes away, the world praises them for their philanthropy. But let a young person turn down a scholarship at State U to go to Christian college. Or let a young family decide that one summer they're going to go on a short-term mission trip instead of to Disney World. Or let that same young couple leave a high-paying job to go to the mission field. And people will accuse them of losing their ever-loving minds. They will call them fanatics and radicals. You go to church. Isn't that enough for Jesus, they'll say. I like what one author said. The broken flask and the fragrant scent testified against the calculated pragmatism of the disciples. And listen, this is the real cause of their indignation. You have Judas who followed Jesus only for what he could get. You have the larger group of the disciples who in this incident at least were looking to give as little as they could give. And their tight-fisted, calculated approach to Christianity was exposed by the wholehearted devotion of this woman. And this is why some of you hate your spiritual roommate. You absolutely despise that person. Because every time he pulls out his Bible, it is a rebuke to your lukewarmness. And instead of repenting, and falling in love with Jesus, you criticize. And that's exactly what the disciples did. I want to talk for just a moment to the Marys in the room. And I know there are some here today. I want to talk to those who really do love Jesus and you want to pour out your life at His feet. If you really do go all in for Jesus, people will criticize you. And sadly, that includes some of God's own people, the people who ought to understand the most. But I want you to listen to me. Nothing given to Jesus is ever wasted. Not your money, not your time, not your love, not even your life. Everyone pours out their lives for something. And the only way to waste it is not to give it to Jesus. So I notice in the first place the woman's devotion. 
In the second place, the critic's deflection. Notice lastly this morning, the Savior's defense. Now, I love the Lord Jesus for many reasons, but let me tell you, one of the reasons that I love him is because in the house of Simon the leper, he stood up for Mary of Bethany. He said, you guys stop criticizing her. Stop murmuring about her. Leave her alone, he said. She's done a good work for me. It's interesting, not even her own brother Lazarus stood up for her, but Jesus did. Don't you love the heart of your Savior? I want you to notice his praise. He said, she has wrought a good work on me. The word good there is literally the word beautiful. She has done something beautiful for me. To the disciples, it may have been wasteful, but to me, it's beautiful, Jesus says. Then he deals with their objection about feeding the poor. He says, you can take care of the poor later. This is a very important day, and Mary somehow has understood it. You have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me, you have not always. And remember, he's saying this on the week of his death. She has done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. In other words, guys, I've been trying to tell you about Calvary for three years. None of you have been listening. None of you are paying attention. Mary has been listening and she gets it. She knows what an important week this is. And she has come to show her love and devotion to me while I am still standing. And students, I think it's this that blesses my heart most of all about this story. In a week of agony, I am glad there was at least one moment where Jesus felt loved. One moment where his sacrifice was appreciated by someone. That week, his enemies would hate him. They would fight with him, lie about him, beat him, and hang him like a piece of meat on a bloody cross. His enemies would hate him. The multitudes would turn on him. His disciples, his friends, would forsake him in the hour when he needed them most. But I am glad that there was one lady who recognized his worth and wanted to do something on that week of all weeks to bless his heart. And her act of love was a solitary act of devotion that sprung up in a desert of hatred. And Jesus said, it's beautiful. She hath done what she could. His praise is followed by his proclamation. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done will be spoken of for a memorial of her. As long as the gospel is preached, Mary will never be forgotten, Jesus said. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we have never forgotten her. J.C. Ryle said this, We see in this incident a blessed foretaste of things that will yet take place in the day of judgment. In that great day, no honor done to Christ on earth shall be found to have been forgotten. The speeches of parliamentary orators, the exploits of warriors... The works of poets and painters shall not be mentioned in that day. But the least work that the weakest Christian has done for Christ or his members shall be found written in a book of everlasting remembrance. Not a single kind word or deed, not a cup of cold water or a box of ointment shall be omitted from the record. Silver and gold you may have had none. Rank, power, and influence you may not have possessed. But if you loved Christ and confessed Christ, and worked for Christ, your memorial shall be found on high. You shall be commended before assembled worlds. It doesn't sound like living for Jesus 
is much of a waste to me. How about you? And word to God that at that final day of judgment, he would look at our lives poured out for him and he might say something like this. I gave Tyler Gillett a life and he gave it back without reserve. He gave what he had. He did what he could and it was beautiful in my sight. So as we conclude, we must ask ourselves this morning, where do we find ourselves in this story? Are we like Judas following Jesus only for what we could get? Are we like the disciples, tight-fisted, skin-flinted, looking to give as little as we could get? Or are we like Mary, sitting at His feet, pouring out our precious things to Him? And I would ask you this morning, what is Christ really worth to you. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.